Welcome to the Inside Startup Investing Podcast, powered by King's Crowd. As always, I'm your host, Chris Lestrino. From discussions with founders and VCs to industry experts and special guests, we want to provide you with the inside scoop on all things startup investing. Whether you're investing $50 a deal or $500,000 a deal, we have the stories you need to hear before clicking invest. From the metaverse to spaceflight and beyond, join us as we explore the world of startup investing for all. And now, onto this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of The Pod. Today, we have a really cool guest. Uh, This is something that's a little bit different. I know we're always talking about startup investing, um, but everyone here I know is is a fan of being able to invest in alternatives, be it real estate, collectibles, whatever it may be. So today we're joined by Ezra Levine, who is the co-founder and CEO of Collectibles. And Collectibles is one of the latest uh, fractional share platforms that's out there that enables you to invest into really cool sports collectibles, so on and so forth, um, and just small fractional pieces of each one of those very valuable assets. I personally am a huge fan. I'm a big fan of collectibles in general um, and think this space is really, really cool. So today we have something a little bit different. We'll get into it now. Ezra, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you decided to found this company. Yeah, so you know, I, I grew up in and around sports collectibles. My dad uh, has been around it ever since I can remember. Some of his closest friends to this day are, are other collectors. And so it's really been a large part of my life uh, forever, as, as long as I can remember. So my earliest fondest memories as a kid were collecting sports cards, like a lot of kids in America. I lost touch with it. And ultimately after college, found myself working at Wall Street. So I spent about 10 years on Wall Street. I was at, at a New York City-based hedge fund. Uh, and then I actually um, had a little bit of a pivot in my career and I co-founded a minor league football league, which we wound up actually selling to Fox Sports. And Fox Sports developed the USFL, for any sports fans out there off of the league that we started and created. And so through that experience, I had a little bit of sports entrepreneurship, uh, a little bit of capital markets experience and markets experience more broadly. And I, had a, I, I knew collectibles through my experience growing up and through my dad being a collector. And so, you know, when I heard about fractionalization of collectible, I'll give a huge uh, amount of credit to some of the other companies that were in the market before collectible even existed, right? So I'll give a shout out to Rally Road and to Masterworks and to Otis, you know, because I think I think those guys really paved the way for a lot of what's possible. And when we saw that, we thought, hey, look, there's something really special here. This we believe uh, that this is a huge trend that is going to continue to take shape. I still believe that we're in the very early innings of of all of this. And so, you know, we saw a really good market opportunity. We decided to go forward and it's been a really interesting ride ever since. So I have to dig into that first. So you actually created the league that has now become the foundation of the USFL, which is watched by probably what, a couple million people every weekend now. And is like the true first spring league that's made it past week two of their season without going under. That's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, so, so what, what we did actually is we, we created uh, essentially a traveling showcase. So the... Uh, the showcase model is called the Spring League. And essentially what we did is we understood that there was a uh, real demand from the players and real demand from the leagues. The consumer demand was a little questionable and, and the expenses related to operating football league are extraordinary. And so we said, hey, look, what if we just built a product that appealed to the players and appealed to the leagues, right? And by the leagues, the NFL, the CFL, and then it's at various points, there was the Alliance of American Football, there was the XFL, there were other leagues uh, as well. And so essentially we built almost like a B2B product as opposed to a B2C product. 
And, uh, but, you know, through that, we were able to develop profitability, which is something that, you know, very few companies within pro football have been able to achieve and uh, build a lot of processes and intellectual property and relationships that ultimately the USFL uh, looked at and said, hey, look, this is a more sustainable way. Of course, you got to mm -hmm. layer on for Fox Sports. You know, they, they had obviously, you know, their own television network. They could, you know, produce these games and uh, they didn't kind of throw their marketing prowess behind it. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the bones of what you see with the USFL, particularly in the single venue uh, type format was, uh, you know, format that, that we, we created at the Spring Lake. Well, there's a, there's a great book on this. Uh, I don't know if you ever read Football for a Buck by Jeff Perlman on all of the failed tried spring leagues and, yeah. and what have you from back in the day. But for anyone who's interested, there's there's a whole lot to learn about this space. And I, I think that's really cool. Uh, definitely learned something here today. So let's get into the fractional share platform. For people who have never heard of this, you know, they hear, wait, so, okay, I can invest in a $100,000 baseball card, but what am I actually buying? If I'm buying like one share, like how do you even securitize this thing? So tell us how the process works and what people are actually getting when they invest on the platform. Yeah, the, the easiest comparable, if you will, and just, you know, how, how, how true uh, how the stock market works essentially, right? When you buy a share of a public company, it's, it's the exact same thing. You know, you're not the chairman, you're not the CEO, you don't own, you know, you don't own more than just, your pro rata interest by buying a couple shares. It's the same concept, right? So you're taking that same concept of, uh, of owning real equity interests, but you happen to be doing so on not a public operating business with real cash flows. You're doing it in an iconic uh, physical or digital assets that uh, essentially is now being looked at as part of people's portfolios, right? You know, there's, there's some really interesting data to suggest that from, from many years, if not decades, even centuries, that collectibles has been a rather substantial part of high net worth portfolios. However, you know, that those, those assets for many reasons have not been available to everyone, right? They've never been democratized before. So companies like collectible are really hoping to change that game and make exposure to collectibles part of everyone's portfolio and do so in a way that is scalable, efficient, reduces a lot of the pain points and uh, makes it affordable for everyone to, to participate. Just to kind of create a visual a way that I think about it is like, if you take a baseball card, set, you have one card, but then you're literally splitting it up in a grid in like a thousand pieces or 10,000 pieces. And no, they're not actually cutting the card, but what they're doing is allowing you to own a very small fraction of the overall asset so that you could get in for 10 bucks on an asset that's worth $100,000, you know, a Michael Jordan card or whatever it may be. Um, so let's get into some of the mechanics. Um, you have a platform, that's where people can actually go and invest, but how are you sourcing the deals or, or the assets? And then where are the assets stored? How are you protecting them and making sure, you know, they don't get messed up? Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that Collectible really uh, has going for it is we have extensive relationships with some of the biggest dealers, auction houses, uh, pro athletes, collectors, you name it. And we have a lot of sources of supply. So one thing that's really been one of our, uh, our key selling points so far is you know, we've been able to have tremendous access to some of the most iconic assets in the world and we don't have to pay for them, right? So, you know, we're able to work on a consignment model, which is huge. It, it, it takes a lot of the risk out for issuers like Collectible to not have to commit your own capital to purchasing these. So essentially we act as, as, the, as the consignment house. So we're negotiating uh, to bring these assets to our platform. We uh, then file uh, this with the SEC. So all these assets are, are securitized 
and uh, we're working very closely with the commissioner. We can go into this if you like on how to, you know, kind of make this process a lot more efficient for issuers. And uh, then we essentially, we offer these to our community. Uh, as of right now, we're recording this in June. I hope, I hope that's okay that I tell people when we're recording this, but uh, as of late June, 2022, we have about 80,000 users on our platform at the moment. And, um, and so, you know, people on our platform will have the ability to buy shares of these iconic, you know, really valuable collectible assets for as little as $5 per share. So going to that point, just to give people a few kind of visuals of, of, of uh, what types of assets they're going to find on the platform, can you tell us about a few kind of hot assets you have on the platform? We worked out a deal with, at the time, the most expensive baseball card in the entire world. It was uh, the Babe Ruth minor league rookie card. Uh, so it's a 1914 <laughs> Baltimore News rookie, and that we put it on the platform for roughly about $6 million. This was uh, last year, last June, and now it's trading for roughly around... Nine million, so a nice a nice return so, uh, for for shareholders on a collectible thus far. Um, you know we have the iconic 1952 Mickey Mantle uh, tops in an eight, which is roughly around a million dollars. We have Michael Jordan uh, PSA tens. We have my my personal favorite piece. This is not securities advice, but my personal favorite piece is uh, we have the the, the 1959-1960 Wilt Chamberlain home full rookie uniform. So what that means is Will Chamberlain, uh, who many believe might be the best center, best big man of all time in NBA history, wore this jersey for every home game during his rookie season. And for people who are not basketball fans or don't know the history of basketball or Chamberlain's career so well, Will Chamberlain's rookie year was one of the most iconic and legendary seasons in NBA history as a rookie. He broke eight NBA records. He won the NBA MVP as a rookie. He averaged something ridiculous, like 30 points, 20 rebounds, and you know, 10 assists or something crazy. And so this is the jersey he wore for you know over 40 games during his rookie season. So you could really see the literally the blood, sweat, and tears in this jersey. It's so cool. So we have that. That's like a two and a half million dollar piece. We have. Tiger Woods, you know, the only known early career tournament used putter that he used in a major. So that's just, you know, a little bit of the types of stuff that you'll find on collectible. Again, we're really targeting iconic stuff. We're not talking, we're not targeting things that are not rare. We're targeting things that are very rare and very valuable uh, and ones that we think will always have defensible uh, demand and interest to support higher valuations over time. That's so cool. Um, you mentioned something that I want to make sure people hear. So there is, in fact, a liquidity opportunity built into your marketplace where you can not only buy the assets, but there's opportunities to sell the assets. How does the secondary market work? Yeah, so you know, we have a we have like a little mini stock market is probably the easiest way to dumb it down and explain it. So, you know, and it, it operates as of today, true stock market hours, 930 and Eastern to 4 p.m. Eastern, five days a week, Monday through Friday, people can buy and sell shares of these. Right? So once an asset is originally offered on a platform and all the shares of that are fully funded, that gets transferred over to our little mini stock market. And then after 30 days of the 30 day lockup period, shares in this start trading every day. Right? And so it's a full peer to peer market uh, and people can put in you know, the prices at which they want to buy it, the share amounts that they want to buy. And, you know, likewise on the sell side too, you can offer up some of the shares that you purchase on IPO or in the secondary market. So really just picture a mini, a mini stock market, just limit orders for now. 
uh, trades, you know, during the same stock market hours as the New York Stock Exchange, for instance, or the NASDAQ, for instance. And it's been interesting. You know, I do think I do think secondary markets for collectibles and I'm sure for all other alternative assets is still very much developing. I mean, it's still very nascent. And I think, you know, as we get uh, you know, further and further into this and particularly as more as there's more institutional adoption, more distribution, I think these markets will get a lot, a lot more efficient. That's up today. Still, uh, still very much a convenience and still very much just something fun to kind of maintain activity on the app. In kind of the startup world, folks are trying to create secondary markets as well, but it is very, very slow moving, very little volume. I can tell you from personal experience, I've been blown away by the amount of volume and movement within the secondary markets on these on these collectible marketplaces. I've probably personally sold 15 to 20 assets at anywhere between like a 15% and like a 100% plus gain. And the other thing that I, I'd like for you to get into, so there's real liquidity opportunities, what I want to call out. Like, while the volumes might not be huge, there are plenty of opportunities to sell your assets uh, if you want, which I think is really cool and helpful to understand because people are wondering, how do I actually get a return on owning an asset like, like this? The other way to obviously get a return is if some buyer comes in and wants to buy out uh, one of these things at, at a, hopefully a premium. Can you talk about how that process usually works, how buyers are actually found for those assets, and then how the decision is made whether or not to sell it? Yeah, that's a great point, Chris. I mean, that, that I would say has been the, the kind of primary form of liquidity so far, right? So as of this recording, uh, out of roughly 220 assets that we have on the platform, 27 have been, uh, have been exited off the platform to some external Party. The average return, average return above IPO price has been 62% above IPO, right? So that has shown that, you know, Collectible has a good ability to, to source great assets, things that people want. And that's really where you see, you know, kind of what the fair value of these items are. And ultimately these items, you know, it doesn't throw off free cash flow. There's no real way to value. It's really worth what someone's ultimately willing to pay for. And so, you know, we always message that the secondary market, uh, you know, is it's a convenience and there's a lot of opportunities there, but it's not always representative of true fair market value. You'll see true market fair, you have true market value reflected ultimately when these assets uh, get realized off the platform. That's happened 27 times within a year and a half, average return above IPO of 62%. So to, to walk you through a little bit of the process, the process essentially is, you know, anything on collectibles available for sale at any time, which is pretty unique in the collectible space. Right, so we think of our platform as an always on marketplace, if you will, of iconic stuff that a collector or collectors or institutions or whoever it may be can come to the platform and make us an offer at any time. Uh, people can contact us directly. You know, oftentimes we have you know, personal relationships with, with the people who likely will make these offers or they can come through our acquisitions team. They can you know, make an offer directly on the platform. There's lots of ways for them to get in touch with us. But essentially, they'll 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 make an offer, and then we we vet the offer to make sure that you know they have proof of funds and that this is a legitimate offer. And once we uh, believe that it's a legitimate fair market offer, and we vetted the potential buyer, we will show it to the community, and the community ultimately uh, you know will get a survey, right? So we'll we'll take a survey just to assess their sentiment around wanting to sell it and wanting to sell at that price. The survey is pro rata to your ownership position. So you know, what that means is if you own more, your sentiment counts for more than if you just own one share. And I think that's that's probably the most fair way to do it. And, uh, and you know, so essentially, you know, if the majority wants to sell, 
assuming all, you know, everything else is fair and it's a fair price and all that stuff, we'll sell it, right? And so we've shown that we'll do that. We've done it 27 times already in a year and a half. And um, it's always an exciting experience. There's a little bit of a love-hate relationship with these bound offers because it's never 100% yes or 100% no. It's usually 65, 35 or 70, 30. And so, you know, a lot of people like short-term profits, of course, but for as many people who like short-term profits, there's always people who say, you know what, I want to hold that asset for the long term. I want to hold these assets for five years, 10 years, what have you. And so you can never please anyone in fractional ownership. You know, that's that's <laughs> one of the negatives of it. But you know, I think anytime you can make 62% in a year, you're not you're not overly unhappy about that. No, certainly not. Um, and I know, you know, with startups and things like that there's a very large chance that you can lose the whole value of the investment you make kind of different in this space. I would imagine in some ways, the only way in which you truly would lose a whole value is if the asset was destroyed. Do you have insurance on these assets? How does, how does that work? We have insurance on every asset. Every asset is bolted. Uh, so it's in a secure third-party location, temperature, temperature control, fireproofed, et cetera, et cetera. So God forbid uh, if something were to happen to these assets. Yes. You know, you'd be protected by insurance value, thank God we've not had to deal with that yet, both <laughs> both from sort of a just a logistical pain, but more so because it'd be, it'd be sad and unfortunate if some of these historic assets do get lost, you know, for any particular reason. Um, but yeah, no, you're right in the sense where one thing that collectibles are, you know, are, are really interesting, right? And, you know, we think about sports collectibles sometimes, you know, as, as a third alternative to sports betting, in fantasy sports, right? Oftentimes people look at sports collectibles as another way to kind of speculate on sports or a theme within sports. And the, the same could be true, by the way, in other categories, but I think it's uniquely suited to sports. And so, you know, one thing that people love about sports collectibles, and I would say in particular sports cards, is that, you know, it's non-binary, right? You're not, it's never gonna go to zero. It's always gonna maintain some value. Whereas if you place a sports bet, that's usually a pretty binary outcome unless you can hedge it out or when you play fantasy sports, usually you win or you lose, right? And the probability of you losing is far greater than the probability of you winning, right? So this is probably a more intelligent and you know, higher probability of success uh, way to place a bet, right? And to, and to speculate on sports. As an investment opportunity, you're right, right? These are physical, tangible assets for the most part. And, uh, you know, while it is a market like anything else, it can certainly fluctuate in price. It can certainly go down, right? No guarantee that it's going to go up, although historically it has a really good track record. But yeah, you're not going to, it's not going to go to zero, right? It's definitely, it's definitely a little bit price protected in that sense. I'd imagine that um, there's a couple of drivers of potential downside. One is it just being wholly overvalued. Some major buyer came in and it was, because of their passion and love for it, that it drove the price wacky and they can't fetch that again. And the other one I'd imagine uh, is buying a younger player, right? Go, going in on someone like Giannis and what, what if he fell off, right? And he's probably at a place where he's already all right, but think of a first or second year rookie who has an incredible year, maybe they're a future phenom, but if they fall off, the value of that card starts uh, dwindling a bit. Yeah, it's a great point. And that's called prospecting in sports cards, by the way. So it's called prospecting. And yeah, it's definitely, you know, on the, <laughs> on the spectrum of risk, it's definitely, it's definitely on the, on the riskier side for sure. People love to do it. And I think probably because of partly just the entertainment value of it's essentially gambling, where right? you're gambling on, on the success of, 
of that player's future and you can get in and out during the season. You have a little skin in the game when you're watching your favorite team or you're following your fantasy team. But, you know, from a pure investment perspective, definitely very high on the, the risk curve, right? So when you look at collectible, we have a couple prospects, but uh, and a couple modern players by and large that we're focusing on, you know, on the, on the icons of, 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 you know, of sports, the people whose values have been tried and tested. There's a lot of Babe Ruth and Jordan and Chamberlain and Gretzky and Tiger Woods. And you can go down the list of, you know, of, of iconic athletes. That's generally who we focus on, but uh, there is demand from some of our users for more risky speculative assets and <laughs> we that demand every once in a while. So far, the track record to be candid uh, is not is not very good on the on, on the more speculative assets so far. So I, I think a great way of putting it is iconic stars equals blue chip stocks. And then, you know, you, you got your upcoming stars who are kind of your speculative micro caps. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of volatility in them. You don't know which way they're actually going. Uh, I want to hit on something here before we uh, before we're getting wrapped up. Uh, you recently brought on the former SEC chairman, Jay Clayton. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that relationship, how that came to be, and what you hope that relationship brings about for the for the entire market, really. Yeah, so you know, Jay Jay was the former chairman of the SEC. Uh, he is also the non-executive chairman of Apollo, which is one of the largest uh, asset managers in the world, and he's also a partner at one of the most prestigious law firms uh, in the world. So obviously, a, a heavily accomplished guy. I'm sure he would say that his his most proud achievement is becoming an advisor to collectible, of course. But, uh, you know, what, what, what issuers like us deal with very much is a regulatory process that can be difficult to navigate, you know. And so, you know, for us, it's really a very core part of our business to make the regulatory environment as efficient uh, as we can possibly make it. Right? Another big part is, look, you know, we believe in regulations. We think regulations are massively important and we believe that regulations are really, you know, an, an intricate part and, you know, a really integral part of developing a new legitimate and widely accepted alternative asset class, right? Collectibles have been around forever and been part of people's portfolios, but never really been looked at necessarily as legitimized and fully scaled asset class. So what we're doing, we're trying to do is really create the financial market infrastructure to support that, right? And so with that comes, you need, you know, you do need investor protections, 100% or you need investor protections, but you also need, uh, you know, the, the regulations to be flexible enough so issuers like ourselves can operate. And there's got to be, you know, the, the, the allowance of, um, you know, of activity to happen when markets would like them to happen. Right? And so, you know, one thing they're working with Jay on is really striking that proper balance between making the process as efficient as possible while also protecting the investors. And I, you know, Jay, his track record, when he was with the SEC was exactly that. It's a perfect fit, right? He both looked to democratize investment opportunities for retail investors, but at the same time, he put very close to his agenda that we have to continue to protect investors at all times, right? And so I think, you know, that, and by the way, he's also a big sports fan. He's a big golfer, loves soccer. He's a big collector too. So, you know, it was really a perfect fit when we connected with him. He's excited about collectibles overall. He's excited about what collectible or company is doing. and. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have him on board. And I also think, you know, just for the space, I think, you know, having, you know, Jay involved in the space for uh, reggae issuers, 
and Reg D issuers uh, and for people who are looking to democratize other asset classes, I think having him involved in this space will be nothing but good. Last question for you here. What of, of whole assets that you own, what is your favorite collectible that's in your collection? Panel uh, last week, and I was asked to bring in a physical collectible that meant the most to me, which wasn't necessarily the most expensive thing I own, but just something that like I, I love. And what I brought was uh, a ticket stub and, and, that's, and that's actually developing to a pretty big market right now, right? So we have ticket stubs to whether it's games or concerts or what have you. So I brought a ticket stub to the 1996 World Series Game 6, which was the clinching game. I grew up in New York City, big Yankees fan, big Derek Jeter guy growing up. And I actually attended that game with my dad and my brother. So it was the first uh, World Series championship of the Yankees that I saw in my lifetime. And for me, you know, that's that kind of represents collectibles to me, right? Collectibles is, yes, it's an asset class. And yes, there's profit-making potential. But there's also this passion and this nostalgia around collectibles that really makes it a very unique asset class. And so for me, you know, that ticket stuff, again, not the most valuable. Probably it's a $500 ticket or whatever it is. But that represents, you know, uh, both passion, right? Passion in the sense where... I remember it. It's a great memory of mine. It reminds me of my childhood, my dad, my brother. But it's also something that I do think over time it probably will make money for me, right? So, uh, you know, for, for me, it was the perfect asset to bring. And uh, and yeah, so that's 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 definitely high on the list. That's awesome. I, you have a fellow Yankee fan here. And, and actually, my favorite one is kind of that same mix, is a ball signed by Hideki Matsui that I grabbed from the outfield during batting practice. And then we were like seven or eight at the time. So he was like willing to sign it. You know, we were able to like run down and get him to sign it for us. Um, and also on that ball, though, is the first signature I ever got, which was Jonah Bayless, who I think was in the major leagues for about seven seconds with the Kansas City Royals. And uh, I was like, it was the only ball I had. So I had him sign it. Um, but it's just, it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, talk about a unique asset that you're not going to get anywhere else. But uh, go Yankees for sure. Exactly. Uh, well, awesome. Hey, this has been a lot of fun, Ezra. For people who want to find you guys and get started and start utilizing the platform, where should they go? Yeah, so uh, you can check us out both on the website and mobile. Our website is www.collectible.com. That's C-O-L-L-E-C-T-A-B-L-E. Uh, and then you can find us on uh, iOS and Android uh, and your various app stores, and that's Collectible app. Ezra, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you today. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Inside Startup Investing. Before you go, if you enjoyed the show, please give us a like or a positive review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to like and share our latest episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to learn more about how we can help you manage your startup investing search, diligence, and management at King's Crowd, check us out at kingscrowd.com. Thanks, and until next time, happy investing.